You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. 2 Samuel chapter 4. We've been going verse by verse uh, through the book of, of 2 Samuel. So we find ourselves in chapter 4 this morning. And, and the title of today's message is God's Not in a Hurry. God's not in a hurry. Now, because this is a short chapter, let's start by reading the whole chapter. So 2 Samuel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all of Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of, of raiding bands. The name of one was Baana, the name of the other was Rechab. So the, the sons of Ramon, a, a man of Benjamin from Beroth. For Baroth is, is counted as part of Benjamin. Uh, the the Berothites fled Gitiam, and, and they've been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, had a, 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 the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. And now 2 Samuel verse four, chapter 4, verse 5 continues and says, Now the, the sons of Ramon, the, the Berothite, uh, which were Rechab and Bana, set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came to the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. When they came in, into the house, as, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. And they took his head and they went by way of the Arabah all night. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth uh, to David at Hebron. And, and they said to the king, Here's the head of, of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Bachanah, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Berothite, and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which is the reward I gave him for the news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? Verse 12, and David commanded his young men that they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it at, at, at the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're not just reading a book. We're not just reading words on a page. This is your living word. Lord, uh, the Bible says that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword that has the power to, 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 to probe our hearts, to, to cut away the things in our heart, to, to, to not only that, but to spur us on to, to love and to good deeds. So we pray that your word this morning would do its work in our heart, that your spirit would speak through your word and, 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 and renew our hearts and change our hearts so that we'd have a heart for you and, and that we would burn for you and that we would live for you. So this is our prayer and we pray it now in Jesus' name and everyone say it. Amen. Now again, uh, we mentioned that the, this, this passage is really dealing with God's timing. God's timing. Now, speaking of God's timing, I, I told you the story about the guy who prayed, and he asked God, and he said, God, how long is a million years to you? And God answered, and by the way, this is a true story. God answered and said, well, a million years to me is like a single second of your time. Like I said, really? Well, well God, how much is, is a million dollars to you? And God answered and said, well, a million dollars to me is like a single penny of your money. Like I said, really? 
well, God, could, could I have a penny? And God said, sure, in just a second. And so God's timing is, is, is not like our timing, right? And so although this is a short chapter that we just read, it took a long time to get here. And really, this reminds us that, that you cannot rush God. You cannot rush God's timing. And so now in this chapter, David finally becomes the king, not only of Judah down in the south, but he becomes the king now of all of the nation of Israel, the north and the south. But, but, but keep in mind, David has been waiting for this moment ever since he was a teenager, ever since the time that the prophet Samuel first came to his house and, 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 and prophesied and anointed him and told him that he would be the next king of Israel. But then he would have to wait for 15 years until the death of King Saul before he finally became the king of the south down in Judah. And then chapter 2 verse 11 told us that he would have to wait another seven and a half years before he finally became the king of the entire nation, the north and the south. And so all total, he had to wait more than 22 years for God's promise to come to fruition. He had to wait for 22 years before God's promise was fulfilled in his life. Reminding us, as the title of our message says, God is not in a hurry. So now with that, as we look at the first three verses of chapter four again, we now have a, a, a long list of those who rushed ahead. Those who were trying to rush God's timing. Chapter 4, verse 1 says again, When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner uh, died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all of Israel was dismayed. Now, Saul's son had two men who were captains of the raiding bands. The name of one was Bachanah, and the name of the other was Rehab. Now, we'll pause here. It's very important that we notice the order that those names are in. Uh, more than likely, that's the birth order. In other words, uh, Ba'ana was probably the firstborn. He's probably the oldest. And Rehab was probably the, 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 the youngest, the little brother. Now, the reason that's important is because from here on out, for the rest of the chapter, anytime their names are mentioned, it's always in the reverse order. This is the only time that it's mentioned in a formal list, like, like the birth order, the oldest first and then the youngest. But from here on out, the youngest is listed first, almost as if to imply that this plot that we read about, this murder plot that we read about, might have been the inspiration of the little brother. Although he was the little brother, he seems to be taking the lead. And so it says again, now Saul, Saul had, had a son, I'm sorry, now Saul's son had two men who were captains of the raiding bands. The name of, of one was Baranah, the name of the other was Rehab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from, from Beroth. For, for Beroth, also as counted as part of Benjamin, uh, the Berothites fled Gitiam and, and, and have been sojourners there to this day. Now, as I've mentioned, we're dealing with God's timing in this passage. Now, by the way, I don't know about you, but, but quite frankly, can I just admit to you in front of everybody that, that I hate waiting I mean, one of my character flaws is that I am not very patient. I hate waiting. I, I hate waiting in lines, and I especially hate waiting in traffic. Anybody with me? I mean, traffic is the worst. I mean, you're on the highway, and it becomes a parking lot. I mean, are you kidding me? Nothing but brake light after brake light after brake light. And the thing that really frustrates me is that guy, and you know who you are, that guy who always insists on going 55 in the left lane. Now listen, if you want to go 55 on the freeway, I mean, more power to you, that's fine, I have no problem. Just move over. You see the sign that says slower traffic, move right? They're talking to you. This is the passing lane and you're flunking. That's all I'm saying. 
just frustrates the snot out of me. And listen, I don't think I'm the only one. I mean, after all, it's been said that, that, that this is the only nation in the world with a mountain actually named Rushmore. <laughs> but let me ask you this. Have, have you ever been in a hurry only to discover that God was not? That God wasn't in a hurry? I mean, doesn't that drive you nuts? Doesn't that drive you crazy? I mean, you know, you're, 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 you're waiting for God to move. You're waiting for God to do something. Like, you know, God, wh wh when are you going to move? I mean, what's, what's taking you so long? I mean, why won't you do something? Come on, I mean, what, what's, what's taking you so long? Well, this passage this morning seems to be a chapter that's filled with people who seem to get frustrated waiting for the Lord, waiting for his timing. And so they take matters into their own hands. And so now this chapter opens with, with Ishbosheth, hearing that, 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 uh, that, that Abner had died. Now remember, Abner, we, we talked about him last week. Abner, if you remember, was the commander of Saul's army. He was Saul's right-hand man. But, but Abner, as, as, as Saul's right-hand man, he, he gets tired of waiting. He, he gets tired of, of always being in Saul's shadow. And so now, uh, once, once Saul's dead, Abner basically decides that, that he's going to take advantage of the moment, seize the moment, and, and try, to, try to have a power grab for the throne. So what does he do? He raises up Saul's last remaining son. His name was Ishbosheth. Now, as I shared a couple weeks ago, Ishbosheth was probably a nickname. Because it's a Hebrew name that means man of shame, shameful man. Probably not his birth name. In fact, scholars believe that, 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 that he was Saul's least favorite son. And in fact, he was, he was so despised by, by, by Saul that Saul refused to take Ishbosheth into the battlefield with him, which, by the way, was probably the reason that he's still alive in the first place. And so now Abner, trying to, trying to make a power grab, he's determined not to allow David to become the king of the whole nation, both the north and the south. So he goes and he, and he tries to raise up Saul's last despised, shameful son and make him the king of the north. But he's sort of a puppet king. Abner's going to pull all the strings. Because Abner really views that, 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 that Ishbosheth was so weak-minded and, and so weak of character that basically Abner could make Ishbosheth do whatever he wanted him to do. And so now Abner, last week, in, in, the, in the ultimate power grab, he decides to take Saul's concubine for himself. Now, when Ishbosheth confronts him about it, now uh, Abner gets all bent out of shape. And Abner's like, hey, listen, I, I, I basically made you. I mean, without me, you'd be nothing. You want to challenge me? You want to step up to me? Well, let's see what you're like without me. And he leaves. He, he basically defects to David. Well, now in the process, we, we, we see that because of this blood feud between Abner and Joab that we saw last week, remember uh, Abner had killed Joab's brother in self-defense? And so because of that, Joab never forgave Abner. So Abner now murders, I'm sorry, Joab now murders Abner. He kills him for, in, in revenge. And so here we have Abner who's trying to take matters into his own hands and he dies in the process. And now these two this morning that we read about, uh, Baana and, and, and Rehob, they, like Abner, try to take matters into their own hands, but they don't learn from Abner's example. And so in the end of this chapter, their ending is much like Abner's ending in that they both die, reminding us that those who often take matters into their own hands might actually be taking their lives into their own hands. They should have learned from Abner's example, but they failed to learn. And in the same way, listen, we can learn from their example. 
Uh, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, it says, these things happen to them as examples for us. We can learn from their example. And so we have this list of, of, of those who, who are trying to take matters into their own hands. They're rushing ahead. Now with that, as we pick it up in verse 4, now we get a glimpse into David's character. Verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He, he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And, she, and, and as she fled in her haste, she fell, and he became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, by the way, at first glance, this verse is kind of really seems out of place. And I say that because the story about Mephibosheth, we don't even read that till later on in chapter 9. So we're reading this, and, 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 and because Mephibosheth's story doesn't even happen until several chapters later, we're like, you know, what is this all about? Where did this come from? In fact, a lot of scholars, they, they look at this and they say, you know what, this verse shouldn't even be in this chapter. There are some scholars who say, you know what, this was probably a copyist error. Now, personally, I believe that, it, that it's here by design. That is, by the design of the Holy Spirit. I believe that, that the Holy Spirit put it here for a reason. And I believe that what's happening is, is, that, is that by mentioning Mephibosheth's name, it's reminding us that not only of the friendship that, that, that David had with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan, but it's reminding us of the promise that, that David made to Jonathan. In fact, it was more than a promise, it was a covenant. In fact, you may remember the story. It's back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, uh, Jonathan discovers that, that his father, Saul, is bent on murdering David. And so Jonathan goes and talks to David about it. He says, David, listen, I know that God's hand is on you. God's anointed you. God has called you to be the next king of the land. He says, you know what? When, when you become the next king, I want you to make a promise to me. I want you to make a vow. I want you to, 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 to give me your word. In fact, here's what he says. In, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14, Jonathan says, and may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as, as long as I live, but if I die, then treat my family with this faithful love, even when the Lord does destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. What he's asking is that when David becomes king, that David would not kill any of Jonathan's descendants. He'd keep his descendants alive. But why? Well, understand, in that day and time, it was a common practice that whenever a new king took the throne, the common practice was for the new king to, to wipe out all of the descendants of the previous king, to wipe out anyone who could possibly make a claim to the throne to wipe them out. And so Jonathan's saying, hey, listen, I know that's the common practice. I know that's what everyone does, but listen, I want you to promise me that, that when you become the king, that you're not gonna follow the practice of the day, that instead you will keep my descendants alive. You, you'll spare my family. And so David makes that promise. And by the way, it was more than a promise. The Bible says it was a covenant. Now the, the word covenant is, it has at its, at its root word, the Hebrew term that literally means to cut. In other words, something had to be cut. Something had to bleed when you made a covenant. So what happens in, the, in that ancient culture, whenever you made a covenant, they would take an animal, usually a lamb, and they would cut it in half down the spine. And they would pull it apart into two halves. And, and then the two people making the covenant would walk between those two animal halves, almost like you're walking down an aisle. And so as they're walking between these two animal halves, they're, they're literally getting sprayed by the animal's blood in the process. They're being covered in the blood as they walk this, this aisle of animal halves. And in a sense, it was sort of a symbolic way of saying that, you know what? 
If, if I ever break my word, if I ever break my covenant with this person, if I breach my contract, then may what was done to this animal be done to me. And so a covenant was in blood and it was for life. And so David makes a lifelong vow that he will keep Jonathan's descendants alive. Now, what's even more interesting is you may remember that David made the same vow to Saul. You may remember that there was a time that, 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 that David spares Saul's life. And then Saul in return, he turns to David in, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 21. And, and, and Saul says, therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul. So David took this vow. He vowed to keep Jonathan's descendants alive and he vowed to keep Saul's descendants alive. And I believe that the mention of Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, is here to remind us that while David may have been many, many things, the one thing that David definitely was was that he was a man of character. That if he gave his word, if he gave his promise, as hard as it was, he kept his promise. And so in this chapter where, where everyone else is, is taking matters into their own hands, everyone's trying to, trying to rush the timing of God, trying to force God's hand, we're reminded that, that while David wasn't perfect, David certainly had his faults. Nevertheless, he was a man with a heart after God. He was a man of character. I like what Warren Wiersbe says about character. He says, quote, Character reveals itself in the hidden things of everyday life. Things like telling the truth when a lie would help you escape trouble. Uh, taking the blame when, when someone else deserves it. Uh, not cutting corners on a job that nobody else will inspect. Or making unnecessary sacrifices to help people who won't appreciate what you do anyway. He says, character means living your life before God, fearing only him and seeking to please him alone, no matter how you feel or what others may say or do. That's character, and that was David. David was a man who kept his word. And so now we get the, a glimpse of David's character, but now with that glimpse, as we pick it up in verses four, I'm sorry, verses five through eight, we now see that these two, uh, Ba'ana and, and, and Rechab, these two grossly misjudge David's character. And so in verse five, it continues and says, now the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, Rechab and, and, and Ba'ana set out and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house to, as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and, and, and Baana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. And they took the head, and, and, and they went by way of the Arabah all night, and they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And, and they said to the king, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. So first of all, this says that all this took place during Ishbosheth's quote unquote noon day rest. Now keep in mind, in, 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 in that day, with, with no air conditioning, uh, oftentimes, you know, it, it, when, when the sun was in the hottest position of the day, typically people would, would stop working for, for a moment and they would take a nap. They'd basically take a siesta. So it's during the king's nap, it's during the king's siesta that all this takes place. 
Now, something else that's interesting was that back in verse 2, it says that these two, uh, Baanah and, 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 and Rechab, it says that they were captains of the raiding army, captain of the raiders. Not the Oakland Raiders or the Las Vegas Raiders or whatever they're called now, but, but the raiding army. Now, that's important because, listen, it, it, it was not unusual for, for, for the captain to, to go in and, and get grain during this nap time, during the siesta time, to go in and get grain either for themselves or for their men. In other words, nothing looked unusual. No one would, would suspect what these guys were doing. I mean, the captains were supposed to go in and get grain during this time. And yet it was during this time that all of a sudden these two go in and they go all ISIS on everybody, Right? I mean, they come in and, and, and not only assassinate uh, Ishbosheth, but they also behead him, it says. Now, we read that and we're like, you know, that's crazy. I mean, what's that all about? I mean, why did they behead the guy? Well, you have to keep in mind that, that, that in that day, in that time, uh, the, the head of your enemy was sort of a trophy. You know, not unlike if you're a hunter. You know, maybe you're a hunter and, and you know, and, 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 and you get like this, this eight-point elk, really like an eight-by-eight. Eight. What, what do they call it? Like a monarch elk? This is like a trophy elk. And you get it, and, and, and you're going to mount that head, that bad boy, on your wall. That is your trophy. It's the same thing with, with, with that culture when it came to your enemy, which explains, by the way, why it is back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, after we read that David had killed Goliath, that he then cut off Goliath's head, and then chapter 17, verse 54 tells us that he sent Goliath's head to Jerusalem to keep it like a trophy, and so now these two guys, you know, they come in, they're like, hey, you know what? I know how we'll get a promotion from David. I know how we can get ahead, if you would. You know, what, we, what we can do is, is you know, we can, we can go in and you, you remember how, how, how David cut off Goliath's head? Well, tell you what, why don't we cut off Ishbosheth's head? And when he sees how we dealt with his enemy, we did the same thing to his enemy that he did to Goliath, he's going to look at us, he's, he's going to be like, hey, you two are, are my kind of guys, which just shows us that, frankly, they knew nothing about the heart of David. They knew nothing about the character of David. If they had really known David, then they would have known that David was a man with a heart after God. That David was the kind of man that if he gave his word, if he made a promise, he kept his promise. And he had promised that he'd keep Jonathan's descendants and Saul's descendants alive. And if so if they really knew David, they would have known that. And so now, as we pick it up in verse 9 down to the end, this is why we discover the tragedy of rushing ahead. Verse 9. But David answered Rechab and, and, and Bachanah, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Berethite. And he said, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul's dead, and he thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which is the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed? Shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you uh, from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. And so David now reminds them of what happened to the last guy who basically did this. And of course, what he's talking about, he's, he's talking about the Amalekite that we met back in chapter one. Go back and read it sometime. Not right now, I'm busy talking. But back in chapter one, remember, uh, you know, we, we meet this Amalekite. The story, as you remember, was, was that King Saul had been mortally wounded by the Philistine archers, but he wasn't dead. 
He's, he's just severely wounded. And, and so he then falls on, on his own sword, tries to put himself out of his own misery, but that doesn't work either. So then along comes this quote unquote Amalekite. And, and, and he comes along and, 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 and either Saul was still alive at this point, so the Amalekite finished him off, or, as some scholars speculate, maybe this guy uh, it was just kind of seizing the moment. Maybe he was just like a scavenger who kind of showed up on the battlefield when the whole thing was over, and, and, and he stumbles a, 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 upon the king's crown. He stumbles upon the crown, and he's like, wow, look at this. This is the crown. I could take this to Lefty's pawn shop and get rich. Then he, he thinks, oh, wait a minute, I, I can't sell this thing. I mean, it's like the crown. What am I going to do with it? And he thinks, you know what, I know what I can do. I can go and bring it to David. And maybe he'll reward me. So he shows up, he, 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 he tells David that he, that he quote unquote killed Saul and now he's handing him the crown. He thinks he's gonna get rewarded only to hear David respond and say in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 14, he says, why weren't you afraid to take it upon yourself to destroy the Lord's anointed king? This guy was expecting a paycheck only to receive payback. And in that moment, uh, David turns to his soldiers and he says, you know what? Whether this guy actually killed Saul or he's just lying and taking credit for it, it doesn't really matter. I want you to make an example of him and, and show people what happens to those who take matters into their own hands. And so they killed the Amalekite. And, and now uh, David says, you know what? You too, the same thing that happened to him is going to happen to you. But listen, as we mentioned before, David has been waiting for 22 years He's been waiting ever since he was 16 years old to see the day that God's promise would be fulfilled in his life and he would finally become the king of the whole nation. And over and over again, over the years, uh, we, we keep seeing one person after another person after another who come along and they try to speed things up. This morning we mentioned just a few of them. We got Baana and his brother Rechab. Then there was Abner who took matters into his own hands. And then of course there's the Amalekite in chapter one that took matters into his own hands. One by one, they, they come up and they're like, you know, hey, David, listen, you're going to be the king one day, so, so why not just take it now? Seize the moment. This is your chance. I mean, after all, David, listen, God helps those who help themselves. And by the way, the Bible never said that. That was Benjamin Franklin. But they're like, hey, you know what? You've you, you got to seize a moment. I mean, look, you know, you can't just expect God to give you the throne. You've got to do your part. If you want God to do his part, you've got to at least do something. You've got to do your part. You've got to help yourself. I like the way one commentator put it when he said, Ba'ana and Rechab serve as, as, re, as immortal reminders that if you rush ahead, you'll end up dead. And so time and time and time again, we see that David chooses to wait for the timing of God. To wait for God's timing, which listen, that's not, that's not easy to do, right? To wait for God's timing? And so he's been waiting year after year for 22 years. And ultimately, this is a reminder that good things are worth waiting for. Or should we say that God's things are worth waiting for? And so he's been waiting. And you know what? Maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're in a place in your life right now and you're, and you're wondering, you know, what's taking so long? I mean, when's God going to do something? And when, you know, I mean, you know, maybe maybe God put a promise in your heart. Maybe maybe he gave you a vision. Maybe he gave you a desire. Maybe maybe he's 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 put something in your mind's uh, eye to 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 do. He's called you to something, and it's still not happening. Maybe you thought it'd be marriage, or maybe you thought it was going to be a career, or maybe you thought it was ministry, or whatever it is, and you're still waiting, and you're still waiting, and and you're still waiting. 
And listen, it can be so frustrating to wait on God's timing, right? In fact, it can be so frustrating that we find ourselves falling into the temptation, the temptation to try to rush God's timing, to rush ahead. But listen to this, Ecclesiastes 3.11 reminds us that he's made everything beautiful in its time. But this morning, we discovered that it can be anything but beautiful when you rush ahead of his time. Just ask Ba'ana and his brother Rakab. You know, I'm reminded of the, of the Puritan writer, Philip Brooks. As the story goes, Philip Brooks was, was pacing back and forth in his study, going back and forth, and he was really frustrated, aggravated, agitated, and his friend was in the room. And his friend was like, you know, what's, what, what, what's wrong? What, what's the matter? What, what's the problem? And Philip Brooks turns and says, well, the problem is that I'm in a hurry and God is not. <laughs> and listen, throughout the Bible, we see example after example after example of, of people who try to rush God, take matters into their own hands, and it never works out for the good. We looked at a list of names already, but, but then there's the example of Exodus chapter 32. Remember Exodus chapter 32, we read that, that Moses had been up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. He was gone so long that the people started getting frustrated. And, and they're starting to think, you know what? Something's happened. He, he's never coming back. Maybe he's forgotten about us. Maybe he's dead. So what do they do? Well, they take matters into their own hands and then they elect a new leader. They choose to make Aaron their new leader. And with that, they also check, uh, they, they choose to elect a new God. And they tell Aaron to make them a golden calf to worship. As the story goes, it doesn't work out that well for them. And so ultimately this morning in this passage, David stands as a reminder that God's timing is worth waiting for. Listen to this, Lamentations 3.25 says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. But let me tell you the, the story, a true story, not like the one I shared earlier this morning, but this is actually a true story of a woman named Mrs. Hanover who got frustrated waiting for the Lord, who lost heart waiting for the Lord. As the story goes, uh, she, she was married to a man who was not a Christian. And so for years, for decades, she had been praying for her husband to get saved, praying for her husband to, to become a Christian. But then one day he dies in a car accident. He gets hit by a drunk driver and he dies. And so with this, she, she, she lost heart, she lost hope, and she gave up uh, so much so that she, 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 she turned away from the Lord, she backslid, she went back to a life of drinking, back to a life of hopping from one bar to another bar, and she just totally lost hope until one day, five years later, she met a man by the name of Roger Sims. And as the story goes, Roger had met her husband the same day that he died. Now, as the story goes, uh, he was hitchhiking. He, he, he ran out of gas, he was hitchhiking, and, and, and Mr. Hanover pulled over and gave him a ride to the gas station. And as they're driving in the car, Roger Sims shares the gospel with him, tells him about Christ, and he gets to the point that, 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 that Mr. Hanover has to pull over. He, he's overcome, he's, he's, he's starting to weep, he's just overcome with emotion, and right there on the spot, he prays to receive Christ into his life. Drops off uh, Roger Sims at the gas station, two hours later, he's hit by a drunk driver and dies. But his wife lost hope. Listen, in the words of David himself, David said in Psalm 37, verse 34, he said, don't be impatient for the Lord to act. Keep traveling steadily on, along his pathway and in due season, he will honor you with every blessing and you will see the wicked destroyed. This passage reminds us this morning, do not lose heart. This passage reminds us this morning that his timing is worth waiting for. Amen? 
Father, we thank you. We, we thank you, Lord, that, that, that you have made everything beautiful in its time. That you are patient. So we pray that, Lord, we, we, we would have the patience to wait. Lord, you are a steadfast, trustworthy God. And so, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to take our hand off the steering wheel of our life and let you drive. Help us to trust that you'll bring us to that place when you're ready to bring us to that place. So we put our hope in you. We put our trust in you. And we, we, give, we, we, we give our lives into your hands. And we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in our life as you will it to be done. When you will it to be done. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.